I want to start off today's episode by putting you in a time machine. The time machine takes you to 1215 on a dirt road to Shangdu, modern day Beijing. As you walk through the lush Chinese countryside, you're a little nervous. A few months ago, the Mongols had just ravaged Zhangdu. It was said for a whole month that the city had been put to rape and plunder. 60,000 virgins jumped to their deaths into the fire and rubble to avoid their fate with the Mongol horde. However, that was months ago. You're confident that the great storm had passed and your journey through northern China will be a relatively peaceful one. As your feet hit the path, you notice something odd on the horizon. White mountains near Zhangdu. It's not even close to winter. Why on earth would the mountains be white? As you look around, the earth around you is no longer lush. It's devastated. Horses' hooves mark the ground all around you. There's a strong stench of death hovering in the air. Farms that once fed the surrounding area were torn up and devastated. Suddenly, the devastated ground starts to feel almost greasier. You almost lose your step. But as you trudge your way through the slippery ground to Zhangdu, you start to realize those aren't natural mountains. The mountains you thought you saw earlier were made of the skulls of the inhabitants of the Zhangdu area. And the ground is in such a weird state because it's soaked with human fat from the decaying remains of the inhabitants. The Mongols had destroyed and killed so much in the area of Zhangdu that their tradition of building a pyramid of skulls looked like mountains to passerbyers for months after the siege. And some reported it being impassable due to the disgusting human fat soaking the earth. The Jin Empire, who had ruled northern China and Zhangdu, were supposed to be a great and powerful force, but they were suffering defeat after defeat against the Mongols, and they had just lost their capital city. They were no match for the great Chinggis Khan and what seemed like a great dragon. Chinggis had said that fighting the Jin was like a mouse swallowing a lion. It was inconceivable that the pastoral nomads from the Mongol steppe would conquer and defeat the powerful, sophisticated Jin. However, Chinggis was wrong. It wasn't a mouse swallowing a lion. The Mongol nation was a dragon, not a mouse. They would consume the known world, and like a dragon, it seemed like they could be everywhere at once because of how fast they traveled. If you look at a map of Mongol movements, it looks like a series of lightning strikes because they moved so quickly. And when they moved, so did the destruction of their fiery dragon's breath. The breath's destruction was total. It is estimated that Chinggis and his Mongol dragon would kill about 60 million people. The people of his time thought he was the harbinger of the age. He was the flail of God to them, punishing all the people of the earth for their sins. Eventually, Chinggis and his dragon burned and conquered northern China, most of the Middle East, and parts of Eastern Europe. Chinggis' empire would stretch from the Sea of Japan all the way to Eastern Europe. The Mongol Empire was twice the size of the legendary Roman Empire, and its founder and revered leader was the great, and to some, terrible Chinggis Khan. While he was a murderous savage, he was an effective leader. He not only revolutionized the social order of the time through meritocracy, 
but also established things like the world's first postal system and accelerated the path to the gunpowder era. With his leadership, he helped transform warring tribes into a united Mongol dragon, which consumed what seemed like the known world. Through building that dragon, which consisted of its military and administration, he led the Mongols to a time of unparalleled heights of influence and power. So that begs the question, how did Chinggis and the Mongol dragon propel a nation to go from essentially nomads living in tents to toppling great civilizations like the Tangut, Jin China, and the Khwarezmian Empire? Let's dive into Chinggis Khan. Episode 4, Genghis and his Mongol Dragon Genghis grew up on the steppes of Mongolia. This was where he started to build and turn the fragmented Mongolian steppe tribes into a united, unstoppable Mongol dragon. The steppes were a harsh and unforgiving place. When he was growing up, there were many nomadic tribes on the steppes, all constantly warring with each other for various reasons. The tribes were ruled by aristocratic families, which pulled their people into constant fighting. Chinggis grew up in one of those families. But he wasn't handed power on a silver platter. During his early years on the steppes, his father was poisoned. He was exiled, his wife was kidnapped, and he was essentially a slave for a time. Eventually, after getting through all that, Chinggis started building a strong power base. People were attracted to his unique way of leading. He forsook the traditional way of putting only aristocratic people in places of high power for a system that put true talent in those positions. Chinggis realized early on that if his dreams for a Mongol empire were going to come true, he couldn't be the only one to ride the dragon he was building. He needed other talented generals or bureaucrats to run what would eventually be one of the largest empires in the world. He needed dragon riders that could use his dragons to conquer and rule. This is where we start to see Chinggis's genius as a leader. He could read people and identify their talents like no one I've ever read about. But the genius doesn't stop there. Instead of the usual, promote the aristocracy to high positions of power, Chinggis would promote the most qualified people for the job based on his supernatural ability to truly know and identify talent. And once Chinggis had identified that talent, he was extremely generous and appreciative of his superstar Mongol team, which made them undyingly loyal to Chinggis. With these ideas, people were attracted to join Chinggis's tribe, which would eventually unite all of the steppe and make Chinggis their great Khan. Like a great entrepreneur, he had his idea for a Mongol dragon. Next, he needed to recruit people to use his idea. He needed dragon riders. One of the most talented people he recruited to be a dragon rider was Mukulai. Mukulai probably falls into the category of history's greatest commanders. He is the only Mongol general who never lost a battle. He joined Genghis in his late teens. From there, Genghis saw his raw talent and Mukulai quickly rose through his ranks and became one of Chinggis's legendary four horsemen on the steppes. 
which was pretty much Tingus's military all-star team. As a horseman, he continued to have success after success, which Tingus took great note of. For his successes, he was given the great honor of command of the left wing for his bravery, courage, and for saving Chinggis's life. Mukulai would continue to shine bright. During the conquest of Jin China, Chinggis promoted Mukulai to Viceroy of China because of his talent and loyalty, which gave him pretty much free reign over China. In addition to promoting and rewarding Mukulai, he made him feel even more valued by listening to his advice. Mukulai was noted as advising Chinggis on many occasions. Sadly, even though Mukulai never lost a battle, he would not be the one to completely bring the Chin Empire to heel. He was unable to conquer their great fortress and capital of Kaifeng. Mukulai's dying thoughts were still about pleasing Chinggis. He was recorded as saying that his biggest regret was not conquering Kaifeng for Chinggis. Chinggis instilled so much loyalty and buy-in from Mukulai by promoting, rewarding, and listening to him that his last thoughts of were his duty to Chinggis. The next legendary dragon rider was Yebe. While Mukulai was an average example of Chinggis's meritocracy, Yebe was an extreme. He was no average recruit. In fact, he had fought for an enemy tribe on the steppes against Chinggis. To make matters worse, he had almost killed him in a battle with an arrow. According to the secret history of Mongols, after Chinggis had won the battle, he asked a group of prisoners, quote, When we fought at Koichan and pressing on each other were reforming our ranks, from the top of those ridges an arrow came, who, from the top of the mountain, shot an arrow so as to sever the net bone of my tawny warhorse with the white mouth. End quote. Yebe and the crowd started to speak up. Quote, it was I who shot the arrow from the top of the mountain. If now I am to be put to death by the Khan, I shall be left to rot on a piece of earth the size of a palm of a hand. But if I be favored for the Khan, I will charge forward so as to render the deep water, so as to crumble the shining stone. For him I will charge forward so as to split the blue stone in the place which I am told to reach so as to crush the black stone at the time when I am told to attack. End quote. Chinggis was taken aback. For if someone hides his actions and is afraid of them being brought to light, they are still an enemy. But someone who willingly brings up their actions is no enemy, but a friend. And Yebe would prove to be an extremely valuable friend to the great Khan. In a traditional aristocratic system, Yebe would have lost his head. However, because of Chinggis's meritocracy, Chinggis recognized a unique and undying loyalty in Yebe. And similar to Mukulai, Yebe falls into the greatest commanders of history category. What he excelled at was the Mongol tactic of feigned retreat. He would pretend to retreat and be terrified of the enemy army. The enemy army would be ecstatic. They would think they had won the day and they would pursue to finish off the Mongol army. While in pursuit, their battle lines would slowly get strung out, and they would get increasingly tired from chasing the lightning-quick Mongols. Then, at the perfect moment, Yebe would order the attack. The Mongols would slice through the tired, strung-out enemy like a knife through warm butter. With victories like these, 
Genghis kept promoting and giving Yebe important tasks. One of the most important tasks he was given was to hunt down the Shah of the Charismian Empire. The Shah's empire stretched over most of the Middle East, and during the conquest of northern China, the Shah had invoked the wrath of the Great Khan by murdering his envoys, thus making the terrible mistake of starting a war with the Mongols. The Mongol dragon swept through and conquered with ease, burning and destroying everything in its path. However, one issue was that the Shah kept escaping. No matter how close the Mongols got, they struggled to catch him. Chinggis, trusting Yebe, put him in charge of hunting the Shah down because of Yebe's speed and mastery of cavalry. A supremely important task given to a man who at one point had almost killed Chinggis. By sparing Yebe's life and rewarding his talent, Chinggis created one of the greatest cavalry commanders of all time. The last dragon rider we'll discuss was a man named Subadai. Subadai was the son of a blacksmith from the forest peoples of the steppe. He had none of the traditional Mongol skills when Chinggis found him. The only thing he brought to the table was ice skating. Sadly, ice skating wouldn't get you too far in the Mongol world. However, once he joined Chinggis, he applied himself and soon mastered the Mongol pastimes of horseback riding, bows, and hunting, and Subadai started impressing the Great Khan early on, since his brother was a great Mongol general. By the age of 19, he was sitting in with his brother on war meetings. During this time, he pledged himself to Chinggis, stating, quote, I'll be like a rat and gather up the others. I'll be like a black crow and gather the great flocks. Like a felt blanket that covers the horse, I'll gather up soldiers to cover you. Like a felt blanket that guards the tent from the wind, I'll assemble great armies and shelter your tent. End quote. And if Yebe was the master of cavalry, Subadai was the master of strategy. He made sure that he got every advantage he could in battles, from physical advantages to mental ones. One example was, before he employed the Mongol feigned retreat tactic, he had sent spies to say that the Mongols were scared, underfed, and demoralized. This enticed the enemy to bite the bait of retreat even harder than usual. In addition, he was essentially Chinggis's chief of staff during the extremely successful Charismian campaign, a job that an aristocratic society would have never gone to the son of a blacksmith from a different people. But Subadai's most crowning achievement was the capture of Kaifeng. He completed what the great Mukulai could not by taking the extremely well-protected city of Kaifeng. In all, Chinggis could have easily overlooked the ice-skating son of a blacksmith, but instead he promoted him and treated Subadai well. And in return, Subadai was another commander who deserves to be on the greatest of all time list. Through Chinggis's eye for talent and generosity to those who were loyal to him, Chinggis created Mukulai, the undefeated Mongol general, Yebe, the great cavalry commander, and Subadai, the greatest strategist and the conqueror of Kaifeng, to his list of dragon riders. The meritocracy would not only help the military aspect of the Mongol dragon, but also when it came to the administration, 
once Chinggis's dragon had conquered. So Chinggis, the entrepreneur, had his million-dollar idea. He then found the greatest talent of the time to help make that idea come to life. If Chinggis's eye for talent and meritocracy created dragon riders, the most fearsome and powerful aspect of the Mongol nation was its ability to adapt and innovate. In the early years of the Great Khan's construction of the dragon, it would seem they were unstoppable in the field. However, just like Smog in The Lord of the Rings, there is one missing scale in its impenetrable coat. That missing scale was the lack of siege expertise. For a time, it seemed like there was a way to defeat Chinggis and his Mongol dragon. It was a beam of light slicing through the dark clouds. If you avoided open battles and hid inside walled cities, you might just win. An example of this was right after the unification of the tribes. Chinggis needed to take his dragon out for a test flight. The unfortunate place for that test flight was the Tangut Empire. At the beginning, everything was going great. The dragon was operating exactly as it should have. In pitched battles, it was obliterating anything in its path. However, once the Tangut pulled into the capital, that's when things started going wrong. The Mongols tried to lay siege to it. Even with their best efforts, little progress was made, until the Great Khan had an idea. The Yellow River, which roared near the city, was starting to overflow. The Khan ordered a dam be built so they could wash out his enemies inside the city. In the process of building the dam, it broke. The waters rushed in and swamped the Mongol camp, and Chinggis had to begrudgingly withdraw from the siege. The dragon's missing scale had been revealed. Yet, Chinggis was not a man stuck in his ways. He had just innovated the steps by toppling down the system of aristocracy. The missing scale was another place he could adapt and innovate. After he withdrew from the siege, the Tongat ruler sued for peace. Yes, they could hide behind their walls, but he knew it was a losing fight. So after Chinggis's test flight of his Mongol dragon, he learned an important lesson, that its scale needed to be repaired. Where he would repair the scale was in the invasion of Jin China, which followed the test flight. Jin China is what we would call Northern China today. It was the leading military force in the area. This would be Chinggis's great and first challenge. Like the Tangut conquest, fighting in pitched battles, the Mongol dragon was unstoppable. However, long sieges were still a struggle for it. In their attempt to first take the Jin capital, Zhangdu, he was unable to force the city, and similar to the Tangut campaign, he had to leave with favorable peace terms instead of a new city. But during this invasion of China, we see Chinggis starting to adapt his dragon. Instead of completely raising the cities he was able to take, he would take all the skilled labor out of the town to help work on his dragon. In addition, he welcomed all Chinese deserters to his cause. Some of these skilled laborers and deserters were siege experts, who started to help put a patch over the missing Mongol scale. With that patch protecting the Mongol dragon, Chinggis set it loose upon the city of Zhongdu once more. 
Song Du, on paper, was impenetrable. However, the Mongols had a noose hold on the city and eventually strangled it into starvation. Once the city had surrendered, the process of building the White Mountain of Skulls began. The Mongols, who had just flooded their own camp in an attempt at siege, just took one of the gems of the Jin Empire. The missing dragon scale was being repaired. No longer could people hope to hide out in cities. When the Charismian Shah declared war on Chinggis, his strategy was just that. Use his fortified cities to his advantage, thinking that the Mongols were just barbarians who couldn't know the complexities of siege warfare. However, Chinggis would crush their great cities, Samarkand and Barkhad, like sandcastles because of what he learned from the Chinese. But if we really want to see the extent of just how much the Mongols would learn and apply from their enemies, we have to go shortly after Chinggis's death, the Siege of Kaifeng. This siege is a prime example of how the Mongols adapted from flooding their own camp to the masters of siegecraft. To understand what the Mongols were up against, we first must know what the city's defenses were. To start, Kaifeng had 12 massive defense towers to guard the city. In addition, there were 60,000 strong defenders who manned the towers and the walls. The 60,000 were reported as using early forms of bombs and flamethrowers. The former were called thunder crash bombs. They would load up a trebuchet with a bomb and light the fuse. And once the trebuchet launched, this is what the Mongols had to deal with. Quote, There is a great explosion. The noise whereof was like thunder, audible for more than 30 miles, and the vegetation was scorched and blasted by the heat over an area of more than 900 yards. When hit, even iron armor was quite pierced through. Those who were not wounded by the fragments were burned to death by the explosions. End quote. If this wasn't enough to terrify the Mongols, the Jin flamethrower would do the trick. They were essentially spears, that shafts were tubes, and inside the tubes was gunpowder. When the gunpowder was ignited, it would spray flames at a length of 10 paces. If the early Mongols, who had flooded their own camp, tried to siege the city, it would have been a disaster. But these weren't those same Mongols. These were the Mongols who had learned from the Chinese earlier, then took what they had learned from the Chinese and mastered it in the invasion of the Khwarezmian Empire. And during that invasion, they had learned even more from Muslim engineers. Through Chinggis demanding that his dragon adapt and constantly improve, they weren't flooding their own camp anymore. They were building walls to seal off the city, hurling massive, powerful, 166-pound stones with trebuchets that would turn strong stone walls to paper. They learned from the Chinese how to build mangonels, which were catapults which fired stones from 400 feet away. Life inside the city was terrifying as the Mongol dragon spit down fire and destruction onto the defenders of the city. Here is an excerpt of the siege. Quote, 
the northern Mongol army intensified the bombardment of the city, and the stone baits flew in like rain showers. The crews of the city's own artillery were put to terrible confusion and were partly crushed, partly pounded. Wherever the northern army was hit, fire started that burned people to cinders. End quote. The Mongol dragon was relentless on Kaifeng and took the heavily fortified Jin fortress, something it couldn't have done 20 years earlier, and something they probably would have struggled with a lot more if Chinggis hadn't kept an open mind about new ideas and knowledge sharing. During his campaigns against the Tangut, Jin, and Khurizmians, he was constantly adapting and applying what his former enemies were teaching him, which turned that missing dragon scale into a hardened, impenetrable plate of steel. The lesson to be learned here is, you can have the biggest, brightest team who can accomplish and conquer just like the Mongol dragon, but if you aren't paying attention to your shortcomings and learning from those outside your team, you will never hit your full potential and keep on flooding your own camp. The final feature of the Mongol dragon we'll discuss today was the postal system Chinggis set up. Now, I bet you're wondering how a mailman would be essential to building one of the greatest empires, but bear with me. Chinggis early on knew the value of communication. When fighting the tribes to unite the steppes, good communication was key. The postal system would expand Chinggis's communication network to be on the steppes, which made for knowledge sharing from the Charismians and the Chinese much, much more effective. This postal system was called the Yam. The Yam was like the spine of the dragon. Without it, the dragon couldn't fight, adapt, or move. The Yam was essentially a system of horse stations that were set up to help spread information quickly, which was key to the Mongols, since they typically had many armies moving at once. And without good communication, things could go bad, fast. In addition, when you have an empire which stretches from the Sea of Japan all the way to the Caspian Sea, simply sending one messenger to travel the whole distance would not do. Carl Barton Silvers wrote of the Yam, quote, While the Yam provided the great Khan and other government officials with the information needed to rule more efficiently, it also hastened the flow of ideas and news along the great caravan routes. Out of China came the information on eyeglasses, records of sunspot activity, the decimal system, and mass production of books. Into China went information about siege engineering and medical treatments, astronomy, and architecture. None of these developments would have been possible without the Yam. End quote. Without Chinggis putting an emphasis on knowledge sharing and communication, the Yam would have never existed. The siege improvements would have never happened so quickly, the armies would have been less effective, and Chinggis would not have been able to administer his empire as efficiently. Which brings us to the old cliché. Just like a spine is essential to a dragon, communication is a spine to any project or team. Without it, you can't adapt or move. Overall, Chinggis and his Mongol dragon would topple the greatest civilizations of his day. He was the bringer of end times, 
the accursed one who brought ash and death to all civilized people. Yet, he made it so that it wasn't just him bringing ash and death to people. With his eye for talent, he assembled an all-star team. And because he rewarded and appreciated that team, they were undyingly loyal to Chinggis and rewarded him back tenfold. And those dragon riders would have been hamstrung if the Mongol dragon was not constantly being improved. Without Chinggis promoting knowledge sharing and trying to learn as much as possible from his enemies, the dragon would have been vulnerable. And lastly, the most important part of Chinggis's dragon was its spine. Chinggis knew that without good communication, the dragon would have never been effective as it could have. But with his yam, the flow of ideas happened, administration was easier, and it tied his enormous empire together. Chinggis was a terrible, ruthless killer, but that doesn't negate the fact that he was an effective leader. As always, you can check out the sources for today's episode on Twitter at Lessons from TL. In addition, if you enjoyed the show, leave a review on iTunes. Reviews help give me the motivation to continue to work on the show. See you all again in two weeks. Bye.